0: I invite you to turn now in your Bibles to Genesis 25 for the text that we'll be looking at today. We'll be looking at Genesis 25 beginning in verse 19. Genesis 25, 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to your word, we thank you for it. We thank you that you have given us your word, your revelation to us, that we may know who you are and thus know who we are. And not only know about you, but Lord, that we may know you. And I pray that as a result of us looking at your word this morning, that we would be drawn to seek you, to know you, to trust you, and to love you more. Would you use this time through this medium to draw us To know you more, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever prayed for something, maybe prayed for it for a long time or prayed very fervently, only to discover the answer was not exactly what you thought it would be? Maybe the Lord answered no when you thought for certain it would be yes, or he answered yes, but in a strange way or a surprising way. Well, Uh, In today's text, we see some surprises that come to us as a result of answered prayer. It caused me to think of a time in our lives when we prayed very fervently uh, for something that may seem trivial, uh, but the Lord certainly uh, surprised us. We lived in Cyprus. We had a, a car. It was called a Toyota Wish. It was a rare car there. Uh, because there weren't a lot of bigger cars unless you were wealthy. Most people drove small cars, and they were, frankly, easier to drive there and park because everything was so compact and so we found this uh, well loved car this toyota wish that was a seven seater it was perfect for our family uh, it was it was uh, it, it, like i said it had been well loved but it suited our new, our needs uh, perfectly uh, not only for our family but also for ministry it was a very functional vehicle it was easy to drive we were learning to drive on the left side of the road but there weren't many of them there the whole time we lived there we only saw one other toyota wish on a, a saturday uh, we had gone to the beach as a family And I remember after leaving, we we didn't have a ton of days like this. There were some challenging times that we had there. But this particular day was really good. And I remember leaving, walking up to the car from the beach, thinking this was the perfect day. And I was thanking the Lord for this. I was just so grateful that the weather was great. Our time together was great. We laughed a lot. Just had a good time together. And as we were leaving and packed the car up and I was preparing to back out, There were several families with small children, and so I was so focused on watching where those children were that uh, I saw the tree behind me. What I didn't see was the limb that grew out and then back up. I backed right into it, and I shattered out the entire back window of our car. We heard the pop and the glass, and we turned around. Mike is in the back seat covered in glass, and so it was a real mess that we had to clean up before we... um, Got in the car and drove home. We had to drive slowly. It was hot, and it was sucking in all the wind from the back. Uh, it was uh, dusty. Um, it, I was so um, so frustrated. I think I could say I was probably angry. I was humiliated that I had done it, and I, I was just incredibly disappointed. And as we drove home and we the next week we called about getting it repaired, we found that not only was it going to be incredibly expensive and we didn't know how we would do that, we also found that they couldn't find the parts. And so as the days went on, we uh, began looking and looking and calling and the same answers. And so we were praying, Lord, you can provide this. Would you provide it? We knew that he could. Uh, we had experienced a time when we were in seminary, and we had uh, we, we bought a lemon uh, we, we needed a bigger vehicle, our third child was coming, none of our cars would hold three car seats, and so we we borrowed some money to buy a minivan and three months in, complete transmission failure and we had no money and the repair was nearly half of what we had paid for the car and Friends called us up that day and said. The Lord laid you on our hearts, we want to give you a gift, and it was almost the amount that needed for the repair. So we knew the Lord could do it, and we recalled his faithfulness in that time. But throughout our whole experience, all we could do was keep taping plastic on the back window. And so weeks turned into months, there simply were no parts to repair it well i 'm sure that you can maybe not relate to that exact story or the story that we read here today, but you have your own testimony you have your own stories of where you prayed for things that you thought certainly God would do, or that he would do in a certain way, and you found yourself surprised, found yourself disappointed it 's something that we can all relate to when uh, we are surprised by life well. Looking in verse uh, 19, as we begin looking in our text today, we see that uh, Isaac and Rebecca are, uh, they're married and they are facing the same conundrum that his parents faced, Abraham and Sarah. Rebecca is unable to have children. And so we 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 see the beginning of this. I mentioned this last week, that the genealogy signal that the end, this is the end of the story. And we see the beginning of the next, moving from Abraham to Isaac. We see another one of those signals. These are the generations of, I don't know if you'll remember, but we saw this in moving from Adam to Noah, and then from Noah to Abraham. Now we're moving from Abraham to Isaac. It's just Moses' way of signaling us that we are moving to this next uh, part of the story. These are the generations of. We're, we're telling the story of Isaac now. And he also adds in some additional information that may seem superfluous, uh, but it's important uh, that um, uh, the, Rebecca came from the area of Mesopotamia, from Abraham's extended family. And the reason that that's important and worth mentioning is we're going to see those same characters reemerge in the story later when Jacob begins looking for a wife and goes back to that same area. So all of this information, as well as Isaac's age, that he was 40 years old, all of this is important for us to understand this story. In verse 21, we read, Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Again, it's a familiar issue, one that we have seen already with Abraham and Sarah. And as you might imagine, it's not only with Abraham and Sarah and now Isaac and Rebekah, but as we read in our New Testament reading this morning, we see it with Zechariah and Elizabeth. We're also going to see it in other passages in, uh, in Genesis, Jacob and Rachel. Uh, but we see it in the story of Samuel uh, was born, Samson. The, so parents who uh, were unable, they experienced infertility. And it brings up the question, why, why Lord? Why for your covenant family? Uh, you know that the line has to continue for the promise. You have given the promise. Why do they have to go through this? Why is this obstacle put in their way? And we can ask the same things about obstacles that are put in our ways. One of the reasons that we see emerge from this is God uses these things both to show his power and his faithfulness, that His he is the one keeping the covenant. In other words, it's not up to them. It's not up to their power, their strength, their ability, or their lack of power, lack of strength, or inability but it's totally up to God. He, he wants them to see. He wants us to see that he alone will accomplish his purposes, that we would give him the glory, that we would look to him and trust him even more rather than looking to our own power and strength. Remember how Abraham and Sarah tried to handle the issue of infertility. But he is also showing them, or using it rather, to draw them to himself as we'll see a little bit later. I think in every respect, we know that all of our needs are, are, are met by our sovereign heavenly father, but there are certainly some things that that has that felt more acutely, and infertility would be one of those things. It's certainly true today. When you talk with couples who have experienced this, the dependency is magnified because Even today with the scientific advancements and the medical procedures that we have, there is still so much that's outside of our power. But for Isaac and Rebecca, this was even more true. There was nothing they could do but go to God. And that's exactly what we see Isaac do. He goes to God in prayer. He exercises his faith. He knows from where his help comes from. And so he prays. And then in the second part of that verse, it says the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, his wife, conceived. Now, if that's all we read, or if you, if you read, read this in your, in your quiet time or devotional and you only read up to verse 21, you might be discouraged. I think people might be discouraged by this verse because it looks like Isaac prayed and God answered. And we think... God's never done that for me. I've prayed for so many things that he's never answered or never answered quickly. It looks like Isaac went, prayed, and boom, Rebecca conceived. But if we look further down in the text in verse 26, look how old Isaac is when the boys are born. He's 60 years old. And so that piece of information in the beginning that he was 40 becomes important now because we see Isaac didn't pray and have his prayer answered immediately like God is some kind of Santa Claus or slot machine in the sky. Isaac and Rebecca prayed for 20 years for a child. 20 years. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed. There, you think of the sleepless nights. Think, think of the, the conversations with God during the day as they're working. Uh, Rebecca at the well or, or Isaac out in the field or whatever their respective roles were. That they, During the day, they look and, God, why are you letting this happen? Why aren't you providing a son? You've made the promise, but why isn't it happening? Provide, provide. For 20 years, they prayed. It wasn't... A quick answer to prayer. And so this ought to encourage us in our prayer lives. (sighs) I pray for something for a day and God does an answer and I get frustrated. 20 years. Well, not only do we see Isaac's commitment in praying for that time, but we also see the commitment to God in waiting on him. Waiting on God is an aspect of our faith that we've already seen over and over again in Genesis, the waiting, but we see it throughout biblical history that waiting is a part of the believer's experience. It's not only true in Scripture, it's true in our own lives. We have our own stories of waiting for the Lord. And we think of the number of times uh, it's found in Scripture, the command or the exhortation to wait. The Psalms alone are filled with verses about waiting for the Lord. Verses like Psalm 37.4, Wait for the Lord and keep His way, and He will exalt you to inherit the land. So here's the command and then there's a promise that waiting on the Lord will result in a certain fruit. In this case, inheriting the land, the promise of blessing that think of the promise of the land to Abraham. He only got a small piece of it. It was generations later when that was fulfilled. There's waiting always involved in the life of the believer. In Lamentation chapter 3, in verse 25, we read, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We don't have time to really unpack all of this, but I would like to mention at least that we see some things here about waiting that are important to consider. One is just the the, the blessing again. It's good for those who wait for the Lord. Do you want to experience the Lord's goodness? Wait on Him. Uh, Do you want to experience the Lord's discipline or chastening or just frustration because you expect things that aren't being delivered? Uh, Do like Abraham and Sarah did and try and take matters into your own hands. Um, These are are such practical lessons for us, but they're lessons that all of us struggle with. I mean, I, I talk about this, but don't think that I don't struggle with waiting on the Lord. Why does it take so long, Lord? Why won't you answer something? This is a good request. It seems so good and so fitting and so glorifying to you to answer this request. Lord, why does it take so long? The second part of the statement is, it is good to the soul of those who seek Him. We get a little insight there as to part of the reason why the Lord has us wait. So that we would seek Him. It's what we prayed this morning, is that we would seek Him. So often our objective becomes... The answer itself, the, the, not just the promise, but the fruit of the promise, the result, the product. That's what we want. And if, if the Lord functioned that way with us, if He functioned as the great slot machine in the sky and just did whatever our bidding was, we wouldn't seek Him. We'd seek the stuff. We would seek the goods, the products. And He knows that about our hearts. And so part, at least part of the reason of waiting is that we would seek Him, that we would come to Him as a person in a relationship to know Him and to trust Him and to love Him. That's at least part of the reason why we have to wait. And then it says it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. There's some instruction for how we're to wait. Not as a clanging symbol. I think of the, the clanging symbol idea of when Jesus was giving instruction to, to how we're to give. We don't, we don't uh, give uh, with the, the clanging of putting many coins in the pot. Uh, that's what the Pharisees would do. They'd go cash their big bills in, so to speak, for the coins so that it would make more noise. They wanted to, everyone to know that they were giving and giving a lot. And that can come into play, that same heart issue can come into play when it when it comes to waiting. We want everyone to know that we're suffering, and we have to be careful of that as well, to not say we can't share our needs with others and seek the prayer of others and take our concerns before the Lord, but that we guard our hearts, that it doesn't become something that's more about the attention we're getting as opposed to truly waiting on the Lord. We, we need We need to learn to wait quietly. Another passage that comes to mind when we talk about waiting on the Lord is one that many of us are familiar with. I would imagine many of you have memorized this. Isaiah 40, verse 31. They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. It's not just in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. Paul in Romans 8 is writing about all of us, that all of us are waiting for the fulfillment, the consummation of our salvation, the day when everything is made right, when uh, we will see face to face what we now only know in part. He says in Romans 8.25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so waiting, it's clear from scripture that waiting is a key component Of the life of the believer, it's a key component of our faith that we are to learn to persevere in waiting on the Lord. But waiting is never easy; it's not. Um, It's it's, waiting is just hard. You know, we think of the three-year-old that's waiting and 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 so tense and walking around and so forth. We learn to control that, but we still feel that when we want we want the results, Lord. Why do I have to still wait? And yet we see, even in these verses, that the Lord uses our waiting to strengthen us. He uses our our waiting to to increase our hope and perseverance. He uses our waiting, uh, I think one of the key issues is drawing us to Himself, that we would seek Him because we're so inclined to go after what it is that we want as opposed to going after Him. And so we read in Isaac's prayer, we see that he prayed, that God answers his prayer, and if that's all we read, we would think Isaac had an easy uh, road to hope. But we know from the, the extent of the passage that it was 20 years that he wait, waited for the promised son. And when the promise was delivered, even that comes with a surprise, because it's not one child, but two, two sons. And certainly we think, well, that's a double blessing, right? Two is better than one. Well... We know the story, and the story is a little more complicated than that. There would be division among these two brothers, as we will see, and it's more complicated than Isaac ever would have imagined when he prayed the prayer for a child. Well, Rebecca also is a woman of prayer. And she is now pregnant. We read on in verse 22, and it says that she had a, a difficult pregnancy. The children struggled together within her, and she said, "If it is thus, why is this happening to me?" Now we don't know that she knows at this point if, if you know why the the, the the what what is going on. If she's pregnant with twins or if she understands any of that, don't know how many how common it was at that point in history. Uh, but there were certainly some deep questions. The the word for struggle here is also translated crushed. And it says that the two were struggling together. They were trying to crush each other. So when we talk about a troubled or a difficult pregnancy, we're on a scale of one to 10. Rebecca's in the nine to 10 range. This is an extremely difficult, painful, uh, fearful, uh, or fear-causing, rather, pregnancy And this distress, we hear it in her words when she asks the question, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? In other words, it's as if Rebecca is saying, this is not what I prayed for. Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Again, another surprise. I prayed for a child, prayed for a child for 20 years, and this is how you answer the prayer? With pain, with suffering, with difficulty, with anxiety, with questions about what is even going on? She is deeply discouraged, and yet what does she do? She goes to God in prayer. Just like Isaac, Rebecca is a woman of prayer. She exercises her faith, and she does what we are to do when we face these surprises, these difficulties, these questions, these, the, the pain, the suffering, the challenges. We go to God in prayer. Now, we're not given the details of how she approached God. We see that she not only uh, went to inquire of the Lord, but the Lord also responded to her. And so there's implied in that that there's something, someone rather playing a prophetic role, unless there was a vision. There's no indication there was a vision here. Possibly go, she went to Abraham. He was still alive at this point. He lived 15 years after the birth of the boys. And so he would have been alive at this point. Maybe he played that prophetic role. But whatever it was, she went to God in prayer to inquire of him. And Yahweh spoke to her uh, in some form and gave her the answer this is what we're to do when life is turned upside down when surprises come our way when things don't go as we uh, we expect them to go we are to go to God in prayer and the response from Yahweh is this two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided the one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger the answer that Rebecca gets is not only an explanation of why she's experienced this difficult pregnancy and why she's had the pain, but there's also a prophecy in it. She's told the reason why things have happened, but she's also told what is to come, that there are two nations within her, two peoples will emerge. Through Jacob would come the people of God, the nation of Israel. And ultimately, well, later we're going to see Jacob's name change to Israel. That's where that name comes from. And then ultimately, this is the, the family through which the Messiah would come. The other line is Esau, and this would lead to the nation of the Edomites. And the Edomites, as we learn throughout Scripture, become a real thorn in the flesh for the people of Israel. The second thing that the Lord reveals to Rebekah about her two sons is that one would be stronger than the other, that's Esau, and the older would serve the younger. Esau would serve Jacob. Esau is the stronger one physically. We're going to see more of that in a minute. But in this upside-down turn of events, In a sense, the way things were, the way things should be, were turned upside down and that the younger one would receive the inheritance so that the older one would ultimately serve the younger one. Jacob would rule over Esau. Why, again, does God do this? We've seen his election already, uh, and we've seen some of this upside-downness instead of the firstborn that we would normally think as being the one to receive election or the inheritance. We see uh, with with Cain and Abel. Of course, Seth comes along after Abel is killed and receives that. Uh, we, with uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, uh, we see election throughout the line. Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was born first, but Isaac's in the line of the promise and so, but here there's uh, we, we don 't see any of the dysfunction that led up to those. Isaac and Rebekah uh, brought together in marriage first children come twins, and the older serves the younger. Well, it demonstrates again god 's sovereign election. Paul uses Jacob and Esau in Romans chapter nine, and we 'll certainly get a chance to look at that as we continue through the story. But in the essence of what Paul is getting at in Romans 9 is that God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. Now, you can hear that and say, not fair, not fair. But what that really should do is give us great encouragement and hope. Because what's fair for every one of us, for we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what's fair for all of us is judgment. None of us deserve the mercy of God. So the mercy that is shown should cause us to fall on our faces in humility with gratefulness and thankfulness to God for the mercy that he's shown to us rather than cries of unfair, unfair. Is it hard to get our minds around this? Is it hard to understand God's character at times? Yes, this is This is something uh, great theologians with minds much greater than than mine uh, have struggled with uh, their entire lives and written tomes and tomes about this. This is hard to understand, and yet it 's what we see here unfolding it 's what Paul explains in Romans nine and ultimately, it is what God is doing to do this upside, he flips things upside down to show his glory. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven: God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is how grace works. It's how it's always worked and it's how it always will work. Jacob was not deserving of getting the inheritance. In fact, we're going to see. Jacob's a trickster. Uh, he, he deceived his father in getting the inheritance. Jacob's not a person in his younger years that you wanted, would have want, wanted to trust or put confidence in. He didn't earn it. He had no leg to stand on. He wasn't the firstborn. It was all by God's grace. And the reason this should encourage, is, encourage us is that just as Jacob didn't have a leg to stand on, so to speak, neither do we. This should give us hope. None of us are deserving of the mercy of God, so it's always by His grace. And we can't boast just as Jacob couldn't boast. All we can do is boast in ourselves. All we can do is boast in the cross of Christ. It's Christ alone, Christ alone, Christ alone. Well, the dysfunction that we see in this family is going to continue, and we're going to follow this story as it continues to unfold. But the dysfunction is not anything new. I mean, we've seen this all the way back, Cain and Abel. We look at this in Noah's family after, after the flood. Uh, we saw this, you think of Ishmael, uh, you think of Hagar. Uh, you keep going through the line past uh, this story, and you think of the way... Joseph's brothers uh, treated him dysfunction, dysfunction, family dysfunction. Uh, when you get to know other people, you realize we're all weird. I mean, there's what is normal. <laughs> there is no normal. We're all a little dysfunctional. We all do things a little differently. And this should give us hope that even with all of our dysfunction in our, in our own personal lives, and our families and so forth, even with all of our sins, that these things don't thwart the plans of God. God's plans were not put on hold or uh, misdirected. God worked in and through even the dysfunctions and the sins of His people to accomplish His purposes so that we would see then His power and His faithfulness in working through all of these things. Even though our dysfunction stoops to new lows, his plans continue straightforward, and keep in mind too that Satan is said to be like a, 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 a prowling lion or a lion seeking that whom he can devour. Satan is a saboteur. He is a, he's a vandal, and he wants to do damage. And one of the places that is prime real estate, so to speak, uh, is the family, and he will come in and create division and lead us in temptation to uh, to to create dysfunction through our sinful patterns and know that even though God calls us, he redeems those things and he calls us not to live in that way. And he will certainly continue to sanctify us. But even the, those, those dysfunctions that we think can be so life altering, that they don't alter God's plans, that he is still sovereign and he still works. So just as Jacob could not claim the right to possess the inheritance, the promises of God, by his own birth order or anything that he did, neither can any of us hold up any of our works as meritorious before God. It is always by grace and by grace alone. Well, the time of the birth of the twins finally comes. We read in verse 24, Behold, there were twins in her womb. Even though God had revealed to Rebecca that there were two nations in her womb, we still get a sense by the use of behold that there was some level of surprise, either that she was surprised just in terms of the manner in which they were born or that maybe she didn't tell Isaac or that just in a sense there's some level of surprise that here before them they prayed for a child and they go from zero children to now being parents of two newborns. Isaac is born first and his body is described as red, or he is described rather red, all his body like a hairy cloak. There are some scholars who think that he may have had a condition called hypertrichosis, that he was covered in hair, uh, or part of his body was covered in hair. That's possible. He may have just had more hair than normal. But either way... He is being described as someone, uh, the stage is being set as, as he's going to be the man's man. He's going to be the outdoorsman, the fisherman, the hunter, uh, the hands-on kind of guy. The word for red is also uh, translated ruddy. And this is how David was described uh, in, in Scripture. And so this describes not only his personality or uh, his complexion, but his disposition. This is who Esau was. And we'll see, of course, the issue of the hairiness come back into play later when Jacob attempts or succeeds in stealing the birthright. Jacob is born second, and his birth is described in that his hand was holding Esau's heel. Now, again, the the details of it probably didn't happen in birth. It probably happened after birth that he grabbed his heel, just in terms of what obstetricians say is even possible, but that he had his brother's heel uh, it may have seemed cute to Isaac and Rebekah at the time to name him this. I, uh, Esau named after the word red or ruddy, Jacob named after the word heel. It's the verb form of the noun heel. And so I'm sure that seemed like when we were parents and we pick out names for our children, that was cute. But this really begins to foreshadow what's going to happen in that the day would come when Jacob would, in a sense, grab his brother's foothold and steal that birthright away. He would shake him from his foothold. And so from a human perspective, uh, this is foreshadowing what is to come. Well, Isaac and Rebecca, as we've said, got more than they expected. It was a surprise now to have no children, and now they've got two newborns taking care of twins, all that's involved in that. And God would continue to unfold his plan through his covenant people uh, as the story goes on. Later, the uh, prophet Hosea would write, In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. And so we get a sense that there is hope for Jacob that he would grow in his faith. Well, I mentioned in the beginning uh, our story about the car, and as you might imagine, there is more to the story. We continued to pray uh, for a solution we we just couldn't imagine what it was going to look like because uh, even if we had had the money the the obstacle was the part we couldn't get the part and i looked overseas to try and have parts brought in and it was just completely cost prohibitive and it was an old car and so parts were limited and it just everything we could think of there was obstacle after obstacle well i had uh left on a trip to go to england for a project and upon landing This is a four-hour flight, so I wasn't close to home. By the time I landed, I began getting messages that Anna Grace and Leslie had been in a car accident. Uh, Leslie was turning into a parking lot, and the the lady behind her failed to stop, smashed into the back of them, and pushed the car up onto the sidewalk into the wall uh, of the place in which she was turning, and, of course, damaged the whole rear end where the glass had been. Well, the result was the... uh, uh, the insurance company, uh, was not only able to settle for the repair costs, but evidently they have connections because they were able to find the part. And suddenly no one on the island could find the part, but the insurance company took over and they were able to find the part. But it didn't come without a cost. Leslie and Grace both had to go to the hospital that day, both had whiplash. Leslie had a reaction to the medication, Blood pressure went sky high. They had to keep her. Uh, we had some friends step in and came and got Anna Grace and took her home and took care of the others. And it was just a mess. And here I was, uh, four hours by air away, couldn't do anything, couldn't respond, couldn't help my family. Uh, just felt completely, oh, I felt helpless. And uh, Leslie, they finally get her blood pressure down, but she ended up having to stay on blood pressure medication for a while. Uh, Anna Grace still struggles with neck pain to this day. Uh, we're still treating that uh, through through chiropractic. And so we had prayed knowing that God could provide for this need. It seemed like a need that was wise and good to have a back window on the car. And uh, it seemed like something that in many ways was was so small. And we didn't understand why God wouldn't provide, wouldn't provide. And then he did provide. And yet he provided in a way that we would never have imagined He provided in a way that brought with it pain and uh, difficulty and um, uh, stuff that even persists to this day. And so we remain scratching our head. Lord, why? Like Rebecca prayed for a child. Why is it thus? Why is this difficult pregnancy necessary? Why are these two children raging uh, within me? Why do I have to experience this pain? We don't always get the answers to our questions of why. Even when God provides the answers that we've asked for, but does it in a way that is different than our expectations. But listen, this does not change who God is. God is still good. So when we sing of his goodness, when we talk of his goodness, we're not just talking about the times when life is going well. But we're talking about his character that never changes. So he is good even when there is difficulty, even when there's suffering, even when there's tragedy. He remains good. He remains faithful. There are many times in our lives when we're simply surprised. Maybe it's not even an answer to prayer, something we've been praying for. Just something just, you know, just comes out of nowhere and surprises us. Life gets turned upside down. And we have to remember that God's character doesn't change and neither do his plans. Just as we talked about his plans will continue and and work and prevail even through our own sin and dysfunction that we can't stop the plans of God and we're thankful for that. Even so, when we are surprised and we experience pain and suffering, we know that those things are a part of His sovereign plan to work out something that is both for His glory and for our good. And so we can trust Him. We can trust Him. We can exercise our faith like Isaac and like Rebecca and go to Him in prayer. Seek the Lord. Seek Him as a person in relationship. Go to Him. Commune with Him. And find in Him, maybe not all the answers that you want, but find in Him your comfort and your hope when life surprises you. The whole point, if not among other points, is that these surprises and these tragedies and the sufferings we experience are to drive us back to the arms of our Redeemer. And that we would find in the arms of our Redeemer what David describes in Psalm 23, that we have a good shepherd, a good shepherd who loves us and cares for us and leads us by cool streams. And He does do all things well. We know this. We know this as we look back in history. But the challenge for us in any current situation is knowing and trusting it in the moment that this is part of His doing well. That this is part of His showing good to us. But that's where our hope has to stand. That no matter what tragedy we face, we know that God is working in and through that. And if we ever doubt it or forget it, all we have to do is look back to the cross. There's no greater tragedy that demonstrates God's ability to take something and turn it and, and redeem it. I mean, the the means of our redemption is the cross of Christ. You think of a sinless, perfect person, Jesus, who in no way deserved death, the Son of God who came down, willingly laid down His life and was crucified in the most unjust act ever to occur, the greatest tragedy ever to occur. And yet that is the means by which God redeems us to Himself. We need to remember that, When we face surprises and when we face tragedies. As we read earlier, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the cross, that we may not boast in anything but Christ. That's all we have. As we sing that song, All I Have Is Christ, right? It's all we have. We can't we can't hold any of our works up, we can't hold any of our positions or our accomplishments up. All we have is Christ, and in him and him alone we trust, and in him and him alone we boast. It's the cross of Jesus. And so may we continually walk through this, this difficult time that we're all experiencing, as well as the personal difficulties that we faced, trusting God's good hand of providence even when things don't go as we planned or wished, that we could echo the words of the witnesses to one of Jesus' miracles that's recounted in Mark 7 when He healed a deaf man. And after the, the miracle, they responded this way, He has done all things well. Indeed, our God does do all things well. And we need to trust Him, even in the face of adversity, that He is at work, that He will finish the good work in us uh, for His glory and for our good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you plant this truth deeply within us, that as we face the surprises that are certainly coming, maybe they're they're coming tomorrow or maybe a week or a month from now or a year from now, but there are things that are going to come in our lives that are going to throw us off that are going to turn our world upside down. Would you prepare us even now through the truth of your word to plant deeply in us the conviction that you do all things well, that you're good, that you are sovereignly ruling over all matters, that you are working not only through the tragedies and the things that happen to us, but you work even in spite of our sin and our dysfunction, that nothing that happens will change or alter your plan but you will accomplish all that you have started. You will finish it. So may our hope be steady in you. May you strengthen it, that we would walk as lights shining brightly, giving testimony to the hope that we have in Christ. And it's in His name that I pray. Amen.